following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. A lot of you together, uh, worshiping Christ together. Um, I think this summer, I know actually it has, but officially has started. I can feel that in so many ways. Um, we've already caught two very large snakes at our house um, and several other things going on. Now the kids are home, all kinds of stuff going on. I'm sure you have your stories to tell as well. Uh, but um, I just wanted to kind of remind us, especially as the weather is so beautiful outside, uh, those of us with children, I've already had some conversations with my own boys uh, about staying either near you or make sure that they're in a visible spot out in the parking lot. Um, obviously, we, we don't want to uh, predict tragedy, but we want to keep our kids away from the backs of cars and away from the back of the building and these places that are outside of our purview. So I just want to remind us with that. I'm a father too. We talked about this last day of Father's Day. I am guilty, and I want to make sure that we together are looking out for the safety of our children uh, and making sure that we at least have a good idea and making sure that we can guide them in that way. So please be careful, especially out in the parking lot, but that's all I'll say about that for now. Uh, let's turn to the book of Obadiah. We're going to be there back in t today. We were at uh, Ephesians 6 last week. Uh, as I do so, I just want to welcome those that are joining us online as well. We love you. If you are part of our body, we miss you. Uh, there is a select number that we continue to pray for and hope that you will be back with us very soon. Uh, we need you to be here with us, and you need to be here with us, assembling, growing together. So we, we look forward to that day that you'll join us again soon. Um, I also want to give you one more update uh, for those of you that were here the day that my filling came out in my, in my tooth. Uh, maybe some of you don't know it. Actually, half of you may not. Maybe it was in the second service. I can't remember. The second service, Matt says. Thank you. Uh, I was in the midst of singing up here, and my filling came out. And I'm like putting it up underneath my lip like a piece of chew, like trying to continue to sing. But uh, since then, I have got it replaced. I'm thankful. The only problem now is that it's too tight and I can't floss between it. So I just want to give you a little bit of an update of my personal life there. Ways you can pray for me, you know. about the. Uh, amen, amen. Yeah, I mean, I hope your list is long, but I just want to make a little bit longer, you know, things to pray for me. Let's go together today to read Obadiah. We're going to read verses 15 through 21, the end of the chapter, or the end of the whole book, the prophecy there, and then we'll pray together. So let's look at Obadiah 15 through 21. This is God's word. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray together. 
Father, we ask for your grace to be poured out on us. We need you today, and I pray that you begin by working repentance in our hearts, that we would turn to you in confession as we've already done throughout our own liturgy here, but Lord, that our hearts would be receptive to what you would have both to teach us, but Lord, what you would give to us. We recognize that you are a gracious and good king. We thank you, God, for being a father who does not abandon your children, but rather chastises and loves and builds and blesses them. So this morning I ask for that very thing to happen as we open the word together and we worship you. And as our hearts sit needing to hear this and wanting to hear it, help us to believe and obey. Thank you for your grace. Would you guide us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start out by asking, why do people make promises? So you think you've probably either made some promises in your life or at least received some promises. Why do people make promises? Like what I mean by that is, what are you doing when you make a promise? Like I'm talking about the mechanism of a promise because what you're saying is, I'm telling you something about the future that's going to happen. I want to give you this. I'm telling you this is what I'm going to do. What's the intention behind the person who's making that promise? What's the intention of someone trying to say what will they, they will do before it actually gets done? Some of you probably have had different job interviews and you're trying to get a specific job with an employer, but they not, may not be able to compensate you exactly where you wanted to be. And so you realize that they're going to have to either meet you halfway or figure something else out. They, uh, they have to test you maybe. They have to have justification for actually being able to hire you on at this certain rate or these specific benefits. And if you're not in that type of a place to be able to get it right away, they will sometimes use promises. For instance, if you'll stay on for this amount of time, this probation in a sense, kind of looking at it, how what's going to happen with through this. And if you do well, then after this, we will raise you to the pay that you, maybe you say that you deserve. But we'll kind of wait until something like that happens. And they use this sort of a promise to say, if we get there, we'll raise you up. Sometimes an employer will promise a certain level of compensation if they perform well, or a plan, maybe like a pipeline for the future and how they'll grow in the industry or in the company, something like that. We know about this. Or maybe it's bonuses. If you do certain things and do well, you'll get a bonus later on. We understand these kinds of promises that we make. There's a specific intention in all this. Promises are important as a tool in getting an employee to consider coming on board and working hard towards what they're supposed to be doing, right? Or maybe you've experienced it on the... Uh, more familiar level of children and their desire for certain things. We've all been children at one point. Maybe we've made a promise like this. Um, Mom and dad, I really, 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 really want a dog. So if, I, if you will give me a dog, I won't ever, ever, ever want any other present in my whole life. No more Christmases. All, all my birthdays and Christmases all together if you just give me this dog. And then, of course, I, I promise I'll walk the dog. I promise I'll feed the dog. I promise I'll take care of it. I mean, I will be so responsible above what I already am. It's just going to be amazing when I get this dog. I promise you the world. In fact, a promise like this can seem to go a long way in a child's eyes, but the rest of us as parents stand there and know what's happening. Um, what kind of a kid is doing this? The one who wants to use that promise to get some sort of desired result, right? Hopefully this dog will come into this house because I've promised my life away. Uh, perhaps the promises that receive the most scrutiny and mockery in our own culture are political promises, right? Campaign promises. 
I mean, of course, we all know what we've been promised throughout the time and what's actually been delivered to us from those campaign promises, right? I mean, you've got uh, whole websites devoted to tracking whether or not these people actually came through on their promises. One such website is PolitiFact. It's uh, the Pointer Institute. Um, they're the ones that have, it's called the Trumpometer. Um, and, they, and they go and they tell you all his promises that he made during his campaign and then which ones he actually was able to fulfill and kind of explains it out. They also, I didn't realize this, but I looked back a little further in their, in their research and they also had a Obamater as well. Same thing. They went to Obama and looked at his promises and see how he did as well. When these candidates are running for election, they're trying to make sure that you can have a picture of the future, what it could be if they were the ones in charge. And they'll make these promises. They proclaim that the future will look bright and wonderful, and they'll explain it all to you if, if you will elect them. Uh, we could list some of these promises and nuances and details, but I think it's simpler if I just gave you some of the campaign slogans. Probably most of them you remember. Some may be a little bit young to remember some of these, but I think most of you remember it. Back in 2000, Al Gore said, leadership for the new millennium. I mean, that was, that's good. That'll, 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 that'll preach, even though not preaching. Uh, he also said, prosperity and progress. That was one of his campaign slogans that he's promising. Uh, George W. Bush, a little simpler, he said, reform with results. I think it's a little more boring, but I mean, I, I guess it worked. Reform with results. In 2004, uh, Bush followed up with a safer world and more hopeful America. This is the kind of promise that he's making in his slogan. John Kerry said, a stronger America. And then probably more recent history, you know, in 2008, uh, Barack Obama said, change we can believe in. And then he actually summed it up in one, I, I think, strategic word, he called it hope. Like, what a, what a word to, like, get it all together and, like, hope. That was the thing he was promising. While McCain said reform, prosperity, and peace. And none of us can forget the red hats of 2016. You know, make America great again. This promise of Donald Trump was our president, that we were going to make America great again. Uh, of course, Hillary, she had on her campaign bus, it said forward together. My point is that all these different politicians bring to the front what they are promising you is going to happen if you would come, how, come and elect them and that they would be your president. They're using these promises so that you will have a picture of the future painted. Each of these candidates made promises. Uh, each of them built a picture of the future so that America could get a glimpse of what things would be like underneath their leadership. Now, of course, we understand that not all these promises were things that were actually telling the future nor would they actually be fulfilled. Uh, some of them were doomed to fail from the very beginning and laughable in a sense even when they were promised to us. But the reality is that these promises were used and predictions were used to show the people of America why they needed to elect that person as a leader. These promises played an important part of garnering support and producing a hope in people as though, well, this could really be our future. In a way, these political future, uh, figures presented themselves as the answer to the problem. I'm just waiting for someone to like, call themselves the answer. I mean, Alan Iverson called himself that in basketball, but like, I I'm waiting for a political finger figure to call himself the answer because that's so often what they're doing. saying, like, if you elect me, this is the answer to all of our problems. Um, they are the solution. But without making certain promises and without painting maybe a picture of a brighter future, Calling yourself the solution just by itself isn't enough. They kind of have to make some promises. Otherwise, it's just arrogant and empty, and you have no desire whatsoever to, to elect them. You've got to produce some sort of vision for the future. 
how things will get better if they were to elect you. You have to inspire people in that way. Not every promise is exactly the same, but oftentimes uh, we use promises similarly. We want to bolster confidence and help people see what the future can look like if we'll do things in this way, even though what, they're not necessarily happening in the present. In the everyday stuff of today, we need to promise, I will do this. Even when you make a personal promise, saying and bolstering confidence in that person saying, I will do this. You can count on me and we will be able to play it out this way. Why do you do that though? It's so that person can have confidence in moving forward what they're supposed to do. Promises are a very important part of the way that we interact as, as, as time-bound people. And we recognize that they really rely a, a great deal on trust and hope in what's being said here. Last week, we took a break and talked about being Christian fathers for Father's Day. But before that, we were in verses 15 and 16 here. In our passage, we are going to see God make promises to his people in 17 through 21. In fact, he's already started doing it in, in verse 15 and 16. But we're going to see him give them a picture of the future. In a sense, God, through Obadiah, is giving them promises. He is telling them what is going to happen. And unlike a politician, he's not saying, if you elect me. He is telling you this is what is going to happen because of what I have already promised way back in your ancestor Abraham. And specifically, all the way back to Adam. That God has promised that this is what he will do. So what we're seeing here today, he's calling us to hope to trust him, to believe in this future. As Obadiah speaks to Judah, he is calling them to live in light of this as reality, as if it was already said and done and it was going to happen, because certainly it will. He's the sovereign king over all. Uh, verse 15 and 16, as I talked about, is the turning point in this little prophecy. Up to this point, uh, he has given us all kinds of reasons and understanding why Obadiah will say that Edom will receive judgment. We saw that Edom, of course, their wickedness was against their brother, Judah, but more importantly, it was against God in their pride. This is how the whole prophecy started. Do you remember that? It started back at the beginning, talking about you were so lofty, like the eagle. You had your place up among the stars. And what did God say? He will bring them down. Of course, what we saw was that the real problem they had was this arrogance against God, but it manifested itself in not taking care of his law and certainly not loving their brother, not being brotherly at all to Jacob or to Judah here. It was at this place that we understood in verse 15 and 16, though, this is not only about Edom. This is not only about the descendants of Esau. Again, up to this point, Obadiah is vividly explaining Edom's problem but in verse 15 and 16, he gives us the reason for the certainty of the coming judgment. It's actually based on something bigger than just like a grudge against Edom. You know, it isn't just God you know, singling Edom out over all the other ones for some reason. It's because Edom is one of the many nations who has forsaken God. Look at verse 15, he says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. This is why, Edom, you will be visited upon with judgment. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Verse 16, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, remember that he's talking about Judah there. He's talking about Judah as the one who's drunk on his holy mountain, who's been carried off into Babylon. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. 
So Obadiah is telling them that their judgment is sure because they are just another part of all the nations who have fought against God. They have not submitted to him. They have not loved him with their heart, soul, and mind. They are part of that whole thing called all the nations. He tells them that they will not go on mocking God and betraying their brother forever. In other words, they will reap what they have sown. We saw this, of course, that lex talionis idea all the way back to Exodus, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We went to the New Testament and saw it in Galatians 6. You will reap what you sow. We understand that God's justice will occur. In our own situation, we recognize that that's not always quick. We recognize that injustice happens, and it's lamentable and awful. But he shows us that this will not go on forever. The day of the Lord is near. That means it's imminent. You have no idea when this is going to happen. They will reap what they have sown. God is not partial, although Edom is a descendant of Abraham. Think about this. He's a descendant of Abraham, but he will not escape the judgment. Edom's sin will bring the wrath of God. And as we went through this, we saw that this was a terrifying, awful judgment because we realize, especially as us, we realize it's not only about Edom. It's about all the nations. Edom becomes this, in a sense, like a poster child, representing all the nations, the wicked ones who will not bow to the Lord. And in doing so, we start to see that the day of the Lord, a time of God's judgment against sin, is near. It's imminent for all people. Uh, You and I do not know the number of our days. We recognize that already, but even here we understand that God's judgment on nations is anywhere possible at any time. One thing is sure, though, he will not be mocked. He will do what is right, and he will bring justice. If the book of Obadiah ended at verse 16, it would be a different style book. Uh, We have different books that kind of end that way, kind of almost like a cliffhanger. And we're wondering, oh man, is this us? And that's kind of the point of the book to make us ask, is this this me? Then the rest of the scriptures kind of fill that out. But that's not what Obadiah does. He goes on. He gives us verses 17 through 21. There's still five more verses for us. It would truly be okay if he had left it at doom and gloom, but he doesn't. He shows even back here that there is more to this situation than simply talking about judgment on all the nations. Really, these five verses need to be considered alongside of verses 15 and 16. That's why I kind of started here to bring us into this. Obadiah has just told them of the inevitable coming judgment for all the nations. He's shown that judgment is coming against sin. But in verse 17... He turns. It's different. There's a but there. You'll see that word, that's a, right, that's a right conjunction, or in the Hebrew it could also be rendered and. All I'm saying by that is that it's a correct conjunction to put there. He's continuing on what he's already been working on. It's not a completely new subject. He's bringing us in from verse 15 and 16 to verse 17. So the thought in verse 15 and 16 is that the judgment is coming upon Edom and all the nations, but... Verse 17, he says, But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. He's saying that to the people of Judah, there is hope. There's more than just the judgment that I've spoke about. He's saying, yes, you have sinned. Yes, you have experienced a a day of the Lord as you have been taken off, the, the wrath of God. As Babylon has come and captivated you and take, well, captured you and taken you captive to Babylon. You've experienced this. 
And yes, we also know from Obadiah that other nations will experience this judgment as well. But although this is true, I cannot change my character, God says. It's as though he's saying, but remember who I am. Remember all of my promises. I cannot break my promises. I am not like a bad politician who's simply trying to get elected. No, I told Abraham that I would bless him and that through him, every nation would be blessed. You guys know this all the way back to Genesis. I told Abraham this would be the way it is. And since I am gracious and kind and sovereign, I will fulfill all of my promises. And for you, that means that you will not be in Babylon crushed under judgment forever. There is hope. You will not drink the cup of my wrath continually. Instead, you will experience salvation, being saved from your enemies. You will experience grace, something that you don't deserve, blessing. Again, uh, think with me historically for a moment here what we're talking about. Obadiah is speaking to Judah, who's been taken off captive in Babylon. They have been taken into exile. Everything's been uprooted. They are not the nation that they once were. They don't occupy that space. Now they're taken away as slaves. They're taken in this way. In verse 15 and 16, we understand that Judah had been judged by God. They've experienced, again, this day of the Lord. If you need further proof of this, it's very interesting to look at Lamentations 1 and 2. In Lamentations 1 and 12, and then 2, 1 and 21 and 23, we see Jeremiah lament the destruction and judgment that Judah experienced. And he calls it that day or that day of the anger of the Lord that they experienced, God's wrath upon them. But we now know, now looking back, being able to read books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that God did not destroy his people completely. We recognize that. He judged them. He cleansed them. But he also saved them. He also put them back in their land. And there's no earthly explanation for why this happened, except that God himself did this. Listen for a moment to Ezra 9, 7 through 9. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. So they're, they're there. They're, they're dealing with this Babylonian captivity. Ezra's talking. And, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. He's describing their, their day of the Lord, their struggle, what's happened, the, the judgment of God on them. Verse 8, but now... For a brief moment, favor has been shown. Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. We're seeing God's hand work to physically provide salvation for his people. Obadiah 17 is using the storyline that we know about what has happened in Mount Zion to show us hope that has come for his people. They will not be killed, but some rather will escape. There will be, as Ezra tells us, a remnant, a small group of those who survived this captivity. Even though Edom cut off the fugitives, remember this back in verse 14? They, they cut off the fugitives. Even though they did this, God promises, get this, that there will be fugitives. 
It's almost like he does the impossible. Edom had worked all the way, not only to plunder and pillage, but to even cut off the fugitives. It's the same word here in verse 14 that we're finding in verse 17. That word, that idea that there will be survivors, there will be those who escape the ones who are fugitives. Those who escaped previously were cut off, but God says, no, 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 no. I'm God. I'm in control. I'll even do the same word. These ones will escape and return to my holy mountain, Mount Zion. We're talking about Jerusalem in Judea. Not only that, it will once again be a place where I dwell with my people. In other words, look at verse 17, it will be holy. Now, this has a broad semantic opportunity here. We could talk about all kinds of stuff here. But I think it's right for us to see that God, again, is, is talking about dwelling with his people. It'll be a place that is not overrun by foreign kings under the influence of Edomite power or Babylonian power for that matter. As Joel 3.17 says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. Not only that, but Obadiah also reports that the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. He goes back to that contrast. You see, we can talk about Jacob again. Jacob and Esau bringing that thing back to the front here. He's showing that betrayal that happened will not always be betrayal. There will be an answer for this problem. Even will not stand as a dishonorable victor forever. There's coming a day when Jacob will possess what God has given them. Verse 17 is really a breath of fresh air. It's a promise. And it's a true promise, by the way. It's a promise of salvation and restoration of God's gracious gifts to his people. What gifts have you been given? What things in your own life do you know by the word, but also the things that you experience? How have you responded to God's grace in your life? I think often we just end up thinking because so many other people get the same things that it doesn't matter. Don't, 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 don't downplay this. This is God's grace and blessing and giving to us. It's an opportunity for thanksgiving, whatever it may be. Perhaps it's your health. Maybe it's the, 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 the information that you've been given and how you work with that in the way that you work at work or the job that you do or the family that you have. Or perhaps it's material stuff or simply the most basic and best gift, your own salvation. What God has redeemed you from, which is his judgment. He's redeemed you to himself. We should not take these things lightly whatsoever. Verse 17 to breath of fresh air, talking about the gracious gifts that God gives to his people. What about verse 18 then? He says, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. Or the word could also be chaff there. That's important in a minute. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor, survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now, I think that you can pretty easily understand the analogy about fire and chaff and flame and consuming. It's a reference to God's judgment. It's an important one. We'll get to it in a minute here. Back in Exodus 15, 7, Moses talked about Pharaoh's army receiving God's wrath. If he said these words, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. Isaiah 10 talks about the army of Assyria, those ones that captured the northern tribes, right? Israel. And he says, you send out, I'm sorry, he says uh, they are like reducing to drifting chaff or stubble, those that are going to be consumed like that. Isaiah 29 says that Yahweh would visit them with the flame of a devouring fire. So even when we get the, the New Testament, we know that this is still true. 
I mean, what does John the Baptist talk about? In uh, Matthew 3.12, he says, he's talking about Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, or the stubble, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So my, my point in all this is we understand the imagery that fire is talking about divine judgment, not just someone's wrath against someone else, as though it's a, a purely human idea here. It's not just a way to describing one nation taking revenge on another nation. This is not about a spat between Judah and Edom. This is more, it's bigger than this. He's saying that God will bring judgment on Edom. And all the nations, of course, when we see in verse 15 through 16. But he's saying that in some way, it will be his people who are instrumental in their defeat. Now, for a moment, we need to talk about the fact that Obadiah hints at something incredible here. We don't miss this little detail because it actually has bigger ramifications than just a simple fulfillment here. He says that it will be both the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph. Now, that may not mean anything to us, but that's a reference to both the southern tribes and the northern tribes. And if you remember, this prophecy is to the southern tribes, to Judah, to those that are in the southern kingdom there. The rest have been taken away by Assyria probably over 100 years before this. So he's talking now about something bigger than just this. He's making reference to it. It's a common reference to describe all of Israel. He does separate them here, but in some way, even the house of Joseph, the northern kingdom, who was exiled to Assyria well over 100 years before Judah was exiled, will somehow know the salvation of God and be joined with him in executing divine judgment in some way. But how can this be? I mean, the northern kingdom is totally separated from Judah assimilated into the people of Syria, how could this be? Well, we know that one day Judah's brother would, brothers would return to him. Another prophet actually talked about this, and it comes up in a very familiar context that we may miss. It's in Micah 5. Uh, you and I have probably heard Micah 5 most often read in the context of Christmas. Let me read two verses for you, but I want you to pay a close attention to the second one, talking about brothers that will return. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel. We know who he's talking about. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is, born, who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Micah seems to hint that the coming of Jesus is instrumental in the gathering of all Israel. It seems to be hinting at something bigger going on. That being said, and although it seems like a long shot, also a long way away, it doesn't take away from the fact that Obadiah's prophecy is real and will have near ramifications. Listen to another prophet here, uh, prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 25, verse 14. He says, And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom, by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. The end of verse 17 says, they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survival for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The end of Edom, therefore, their, their doom is sealed. It is going to happen. They will be destroyed as an earthly power. They will be consumed. They will no longer exist as a people who will oppose Yahweh. 
Now, I just want to take a minute here and just make sure we understand that doesn't mean that anyone that had Edomite blood will be dead. We're not talking about complete and utter extermination of every single person. This is not about completion in that way, in this bloodline idea. This is about authority and kingship and rebellion. We've got to think about kingdoms and what's going on here in the big picture. Do you remember Edom's problem at the beginning of the prophecy? I hinted it already here. If you remember, pride, arrogance, lofty thinking, self-reliance. They had no place for submission to God, the God of Israel. Edom's real problem, again, was the relationship not with his brother, although that was wicked. It was their problem with their relationship with God. Their real problem was how they viewed themselves against the almighty sovereign creator. This kind of nation, one who will not submit to the real king, has chosen their own destiny, destruction, and complete, utter insignificance. I think it's most easily understood when we think about it in light of the final verse, verse 21, if you look down there. Verse 21, we are asking, whose kingdom is it? Can any of these other people stand? Verse 21 tells us the kingdom shall be the Lord's, and the people of Edom will no longer exist as a people who oppose Yahweh. In other words, this is a done deal. This will happen. It's going to happen. He kind of finishes that off by giving us that important phrase, for the Lord has spoken. It's almost as though right in the middle of his prophecy, he's interjecting, make sure you understand, this will happen. The Lord himself has said it. In verses 19 through 20 then, we have an expansion of verse 17. If you remember, the end of verse 17 said, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Here in verses 19 through 20, Obadiah walks back to the time, we know this time, of Joshua and the conquest and all the areas that he had made their inheritance. That same word there isn't going to be important. Those things which God has, those things which God has given to them. The word used over and over again in this section, possess, you'll see it 19 to 20 over and over again. It's right, but it can also mean inherit or dispossess. So those three words are, are in a sense, not interchangeable compared to the context, but they're all hitting at their same thing here. He's talking about that which was given to them. This is a complete reversal then, not only of what Edom has done to Judah, but think bigger than this. All the surrounding nations, what they have done throughout the ages as they fought against God's people and taken different territories throughout their inheritance. God is promising to give his people what he had already promised to give them. Although of their own power, they had lost it. They had lost it their own sin, weakness, and lack of trusting God. He goes through piece by piece to talk about the entire border around this territory, east, west, south, and north. This kind of talk anticipates the return, actually, of Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra as well. I, I'm not going to go there next, I don't think, but I am fascinated by Ezra and Nehemiah as they're coming back and bringing back the people of God to Jerusalem, as they're putting them back in this place and building walls and building things back up. In Ezra 2 and 8, you'll see this exact thing happening. Remember, God is giving his people a word of encouragement, of hope, a promise of salvation and blessing. He is literally telling them there will be territorial expansion based on the promises that I have given you. Remember what I told you I would do. It will certainly happen. I will bless you again and again. He's promising this, that the people that submit to him and him alone as king will receive what he has planned for them, that they would regain this ancient territory. 
So what we kind of see is that spiritual restoration and reconciliation with God brings His blessing. Now that's not to say that somehow if we do our prayers, then God gives us a bunch of cars. Like that idea of the modern prosperity gospel, if we do the right things, we please Him, we'll get a bunch of good stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. But we are seeing as God blesses His people that those things are tangible and tactile. Real blessings that we know and can trust that they even, in a sense, represent something far greater than just the things that may be in our hands. To us, material possessions may seem, in a sense, almost worldly or secular, but they are a way that God shows that His blessings are real. They're as real, in a sense, as we think about the things around us. This is as real as God Himself is. They tangibly show Israel that they have been given all things in Christ, and that one day, Not only would there be a possession of one piece of land in the Middle East, but that they would inherit the earth. You know, it's from the Beatitudes. Uh, Now look at verse 21. He says that saviors would go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. In other words, Edom would no longer have control. Instead, it would be God's people who ruled the territory. Judah would once again reclaim the land that God had given to them. And they would do so by saviors. Now, I'll admit, when I first read that, I'm thinking, There's, there can't be an S on that. There's only one Savior. Like, we like, like, talk about the right person here. Uh, but let me take a moment here and just admit that this is a difficult wording, but it's important to understand it. There are two options for us to understand this word. First, of course, it could be saviors, those who would save or those who would be deliverers. The same word is actually used in judges many times over. So it's not an inappropriate word whatsoever. We'd be talking about a military hero one that would do the work of God in these holy wars, that God has said, yes, attack. They've been used by God many times over and over again. In that way, it's right to call them saviors. But it could also be those who are saved. It would be the reverse of this, uh, were delivered in a sense, that they were saved out of Babylon. This also makes sense for the prophecy, but the problem is that this grammar doesn't really support that. So it's not, I, I, I don't feel comfortable with that, but Some guys do, and I'm fine with that. Um, The good news is, even though that's possible, either way, Obadiah is saying the same thing. What I mean here is that there will be those who go back to Jerusalem, who conquer it, and rule the people and territories of Edom. Israel will return to her territory, and through military activity and political administration, she will rule that possession again. It will be her inheritance. But even as I say that, when you remember that this is not just political or secular reality. It's not just two groups of people having this happen. This doesn't mean that Jacob is acting on his own behalf to settle the score between him and his brother Esau. That's not what's happening here. The very last phrase just makes this totally plain. This isn't about the kingdom of Israel even. It's about the sovereign control and glory of the king of kings. He again points to the larger picture. Verse 21 ends, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Well, when I look at this, I think this prophecy is incredible. And the next question that I ask, although we don't have a lot of time, is did any of it come true? What parts are we looking at here? Well, yes, it did, at least in part come true. Edom was destroyed. It was first invaded in the next century by Arabs, a group called the Nabataeans. And then there's wave after wave of different invasion and wars and the stress that comes on the survivors that are there and finally they dissolve and they're lost to history in so many ways. That doesn't mean that there weren't individuals. We see different, uh, those of 
Edomite descent, but no nation per se, no significance whatsoever, no political power, and no way to actually reconstitute it all. Judah also returned to their territory. I've talked about that from Ezra. We see them come back after the Babylonian exile. They took back territory, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us the nature of this endeavor and what happens there. But it wasn't ever like they thought it was going to be. It seemed as though there was fulfillment, but not everything matched up. There wasn't everything that they thought was going to happen. Not every detail specifically worked out. And what happens, although that was fulfilled, they were left wanting, as though there may be something better or more in this prophecy. It's almost as if they got a taste and a true fulfillment, but not the ultimate fulfillment. But this isn't surprising to you, being Christians, knowing the rest of the story, knowing that one has come who has taken the wrath of God and experienced the day of the Lord for his people. When Christ came, he declared that the kingdom of God had begun. In doing so, he welcomes not only Jews, but Gentiles also into his kingdom to worship his Father through him and to be his people forever. What I'm saying is in Jesus Christ, we find even more of what Obadiah has promised being fulfilled. And even at that, we realize that not all of those things have become fulfilled. We still look at this and think there must be more. We still long for the day that God and his kingdom will rule over every evildoer, will be stopped and sin will stop and all this judgment will actually come true and so that he will reign supreme. We long for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We long to see his his reign supreme in every square inch and to join him even in his ruling. These things are glorious and we believe that it is this that he has shown us. He will fulfill not only what he has already, but he will fulfill it in totality, in every part. Sometimes we struggle to understand all this will mean, but it does make it, it does, excuse me, it does not make it any less glorious. Regardless, all of this, I want to come back and uh, one of the things that I've wrestled with heavily this week is, man, I feel like I get some charts out here and put out all the different things to kind of tell you what's going to happen, what has happened, all these things. But my question to you is, why is Obadiah telling us all of this? Why is he putting this out to us? Obadiah brings us a word of hope, a word of confidence, a promise of blessing, right, to God's people. If we go back to the beginning of our time here, I ask you the question, what is the use of a promise? Uh, I mean, what's the intention behind telling someone something that will be done, but they haven't seen it yet? Because do you realize that that's what God is doing here? He is giving them a word to say, this is what will happen. I promise you, you can trust me. You can have confidence and hope. In the midst of whatever you are struggling with, I promise you that I will be true. Not only that, that I will bless you. I promised Abraham I would. You see it through all of the patriarchs. You watch it most gloriously in Jesus Christ come to fruition. And even as we see and wait for him to come again, he can be trusted, brothers and sisters. We may not see him with our eyes, We know who he is and what he has called us to do. And again, I go back to that question, why would would he use these things to, to, to give us these promises? He calls us to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Those who believe that last statement, that the kingdom is the Lord's. And so... The truth is, the application here, my goodness, it's myriad. It's it's all of the Christian life, guys. It's everything that he called us to do. We know it's true. 
and it's good and right for us. It's not a drudgery. We know that the king is on his throne and that one day he will make all things right. And it causes us, therefore, to walk in joy and hope in the midst of suffering and abuse and problems and need. All these things, and our own sin, by the way, we know that he will overcome and he has in Jesus Christ. He is saying that although our experiences are terrible, again, remember, Obadiah is talking to people who have terrible experiences going on. Although they're terrible, although they have sinned against him, they're experiencing judgment. Although wicked Edom seems to be doing pretty well around them, God will bring divine justice and provide salvation and restoration for his people. This is the message for us then. It's a message of hope and confidence, not of one of technicalities, although there's a lot to learn here. This is more for us to say, God wins. I need to trust him and him alone and walk forward in what he's called me to. Salvation belongs to our God. So my call is simple. Brothers and sisters, you've heard the truth spoken. Hope in him. Trust in him and live as he has called us to live. It is for our good and for our joy. Trusting him is everything then that we ought to be doing. It's the foundation as we respond to God's goodness and grace and hand of blessing. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the book of Obadiah, this prophecy. We thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ who has shown us, Lord, what it means to take the day of the Lord where I know, Lord, that I, we deserve every bit of judgment. But we know Christ on the cross has taken that judgment. The wrath of God was poured out. He took the cup willingly. And Lord, we know that you bruised him. We're thankful, Father, that your mercies are new and that you promise that you will be merciful, that you will judge all nations, and that you will save your people. All who trust Jesus Christ and him alone will be saved. I pray today, even those that are listening, those that are uh, in, in, in our classrooms, as Jordan prayed before, our teens that are away talking with one another and listening to the word, both preached and talked about, Lord, that you would do a work in their hearts. We, we, we want to labor and work and preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus, but it has to be you to change hearts. So I beg you to change our hearts, Lord, both maybe for this first time within our congregation and also continually, Lord, Help us to return to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that our hope is only in him. We thank you for your great work and we pray for your continued work in our lives that you might receive glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray.